Hey, good morning, everybody. I hear I hear a little bit of like computer noise in my ears. I hope y'all aren't hearing that. Um, sorry, I'm a couple minutes late. Things were just kind of slow around this house this morning. Um, it's been cold and rainy here in Virginia, and uh, it's just been really good. It's been really good weather to sleep in and drink coffee and wear a sweater or, um, you know, like a hoodie or whatever. I love this kind of weather. It's my favorite kind of weather. So it's been it's been like drink, you know, like eat soup and just chill and watch movies or listen to music like, man, I love this weather. Uh, it's been I love this time of year. It's been really good. Um, but it means that I'm slow. My three year old slow. And uh, this morning it also meant my computer was pretty slow. So I am here. Welcome. Thank you for being here up and early. We got some really nerdy stuff to cover. We got a lot of court docs I'm going to look at and some stuff about James Baker. You know, I was thinking that on, I think it was the bonus hour that I did. Um, pretty sure it was on the, yeah, it was on the bonus hour I did. I was talking about James Baker and I was making some pushback like, hey, like stop blaming this guy for so much stuff without evidence to blame him for it like yeah he's a player in all of this but quit assigning him so much of the blame because when you assign so much blame to one person you're taking blame off of people who are more deserving of it and it's like i tempted the universe to assign i i tempted the simulation to assign james baker some blame so we got the thread, the Twitter thread last night from Matt Taibbi, and we got comments from Elon that he just fired James Baker. So we're going to talk about that today. And let's see what else. The Epstein lawsuit against the banks. And then we got a swampy Republican that has been indicted and arrested um, and some other things. So we'll see. We'll see how much we get to. I really am laughing about the Baker thing because as soon as that news broke and I saw that tweet from Elon, I was like, yeah, this simulation, this simulation, it either it either winks at me sometimes or it just like comes by and just slaps you upside the head. Um, Like, here you go. I'm about to make you contradict everything you just told your audience a few days ago, at least seemingly anyway. So. Good morning, everybody, and um, it's it's December 7th and Pearl Harbor Day, and God bless all of those who served and, um, in World War II. Um, I was fortunate enough to know several of them and be friends with them, including some family members, and um, yeah, that generation is just about gone, unfortunately, but... I was thinking uh, the other day, it was last night, um, I was thinking how it was based, it was based, actually it came off of a comment from Adam Krigler's show. They were talking about the difference between um, Gen X and Gen Z and millennials. And they keyed in on, if you were born in the early 1980s or before, you had the benefit of being around the greatest generation and how much that affected all of us. And I was thinking about how good of a point that is that, that there's a, there's a real difference in, in people who got to spend time 
with the generation that went through the Depression and the generations that went through World War II. And it had a profound impact on you, on your worldview and on your values, on your ethics and your perspective. And, um, yeah, I'm really, th- I'm really thankful for the people that I know that I was privileged to know who served in World War II um, and for their, the experiences that they shared with me. So God, God bless every one of them, and I'm thankful, I'm thankful that I knew them and thankful for what they did. First bit of news. Let's get over here to our blank screen. There we go. There we go. There we go. So there was a runoff in Georgia last night and um, didn't go the way we wanted it to. If I let's see, this is updated three hours ago. Let's see. Does it tell me the results? No, I don't see it. Let's see. Let's go to CBS News. I'll be fine. I want to see what the difference is in the vote. I saw New York Times told me it was about 100,000 votes. There it is. There we go. So about 100,000 vote difference is what it's come down to, allegedly. I was hopeful that Walker would, would win this, but I was prepared, I'm sure, like most of y'all, for it not to happen and for Warnock to get in again, amazingly. Um, so I'm not exactly surprised, but I'm not black pilling over. I was like, yeah, I want walk Walker to win, but, um, I, I like Walker. I'm not, I don't know that he was the best candidate for this seat. I honestly don't know. Um, but I like him. My, I've noticed that, a lot of the uh, conservative incorporated types and uh, pundits are immediately blaming Trump for this loss. And they're either saying that Walker lost because he was associated with Trump and Trump it has a negative effect on candidates and we need to move on from Trump. Or they're saying the opposite and saying Walker didn't get enough help from Trump. Trump is to blame for this because Trump didn't help Walker. So like I'm seeing people who want to bash on Trump saying two opposite things. One side saying it's Trump's fault because he didn't help Walker enough. And then there's another group of people who are saying it's Trump's fault because he associated with Walker and therefore he damaged Walker by being associated with Trump. And but both groups that are saying this are agreeing that we need to move on from Trump. And that's really their point. And that's why that they have such an incongruous assessment of what happened in this race already is because their assessment doesn't really matter whether how they blame Trump. All that matters to them is that they blame Trump for the Georgia runoff loss in any way they can because they want Trump gone and they want it to be either DeSantis or someone else because they're tired. They're tired of their swampy uniparty and their grift being exposed. They want Trump gone so that they can have the uniparty back and they can go back to pretend fighting the Democrats. And they want it the way it was 20 years ago. 
it's easy to see through these people. Um, I saw reporting that Walker actually asked Trump to back away a bit because Walker had felt he had a chance to win the moderates and Walker felt that if Trump came and campaigned for him in Georgia and did more than he did, it would actually hurt Walker's chances that this was the advice and the request that was made of Trump. And that's why Trump didn't go to Georgia and rally for Walker. I don't know that that's true. I saw that reported by a reputable source, but um, I haven't actually seen like a statement that says that or a comment from Trump that says that. Um, I would believe it though. I would, I, I could believe that that was that that was said, and if that's true, then that's that was a bad move. That was a that was a bad move. Um, but but here we are looking at this race, and I know none of us actually believe these numbers really. Um, I don't say about it, guys. I sure would have liked for him to want, have won, but is what it is. The balance of power in the Senate is now going to be 51-49 unless something happens in Arizona. And um, that's going to mean that Democrats don't have a power-sharing agreement with the Republicans like they did this last time. But I'm not sure it makes that much of a difference as far as what's going to happen in this Senate over these next two years because they're not going to be able to get things through the House because it's going to be GOP controlled. And then they're coming up on an election year in 2024. And you know that they're going to moderate um, to some degree, especially in the, especially a year from now, because they're going to want to seem more centrist and uh, conservative than they actually are, these Democrats. So I think the, the Senate is going to be largely stuck even though the Democrats do have a majority, I'm sure they're going to try stuff. I'm sure they're going to have like some banner legislation. They're going to try and pass and um, all that stuff. And media is going to report it as either the greatest thing, but the GOP's in the way in the house or, you know, whatever. But I think the, the Senate, even though Democrats have it, I don't think they're going to get much done with it. I mean, if you look at the first two years of Biden administration, how much did they get done? Like, the Biden administration came out the gate with the White House, the Senate, and the and the House. And they had all of these big plans. They had this big plan for their first 100 days. It failed. They had this big dream of the the um of all sorts of things they wanted to pass, build back better and all this stuff. They passed some things, but it was a shadow of what they actually wanted to get passed. Um they really accomplished nothing. They just fought with each other over and over again. Um, good morning, Iowa Trump. Yeah, Mansion and Cinema got in the way of a bunch of things. Um, thankfully. So I think it's just gonna be this. I don't know, Senate's just gonna be stuck. I'm I'm not like in other words, I'm just not that upset about the balance of power in the Senate. Um, the only thing that really is the thing that's the win here for them. And having this control is being able to have committee assignments and committee chairs and control the agenda, which is why we really, 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 really needed Walker to win. And we really, really needed um, 
Blake Masters to win, and we really, really needed um, Oz to win so that we could have a majority in the Senate and we could control committee assignments and chairs and we could control the agenda in the Senate. That's what we needed that really bad. And that's the main loss out of out of this right here. That's the main that's the primary impact that uh this has. And it's that's their victory. The Democrats are gonna have that power now, and that sucks. Okay. But here, let me white pill you a bit. After covering that, let me white pill you. Florida girl, good morning. I'm about to refute what you just said. Florida girl said, can't win with rigged states. Well, you're right that in some places you can't win because it is it is that rigged. You're right. You're totally right. But it's not that rigged everywhere. And we did just win the house and we won a whole bunch more and check this out. 3.5 million more Americans voted Republican in the midterms. So go ahead and blame Trump, but the turnout was 3.5 million more. Now I'm not saying you're, you're blaming Trump, Florida girl. You're right. In certain places we can't win because it's just that rigged against us. You're totally right. I'm just refuting the sentiment. So don't, don't take it personally at all. Um, you've just teed me up for this article. It was quite head-spinning to see how instantly and gleefully many Republicans of the high forehead class leapt to blame Donald Trump for the less red wavy than expected 2022 midterms and leapt from there to condemning the 2024 presidential run. But before lifting new champion Governor DeSantis to their shoulders, the Trump trashers would do well to pray Caesar rather than burying him. The Trump magic is clear in the midterms. In the midterm numbers, 92% of Trump's endorsees won their primaries, as did 86% of his general election picks. The naysayers claiming his 2020 coattails were toxic in 2022, even though he had no coattails because he wasn't on the ballot, are simply wrong. In total, Trump's candidates won 224 of 241 primary races and 208 of 254 general election ones. Yeah, Florida girl, you're good. You're good. I know you're not blaming Trump. You're good. You just teed me up for this. This Specifically, you teed me up for this paragraph right here. That 92% of Trump's endorsees won their primaries, as did 86% of his general election picks, even though he wasn't even on the ballot. And in primary races, that means that Trump's candidates won 224 out of 241 primary races and 208 out of 254 general election ones. So the idea, the idea that Trump is to blame for losses is so absurd. And I would posit the idea that we can't win is absurd too, because look at all the winning we just did. 92% in primaries and 86% in the general election. We, we had a huge turnout. We had a huge success rate. Imagine you're a baseball player and you hit 92% of the pitches thrown at you or 86%. Like imagine being a quarterback and like, 
or a receiver. I don't, I don't even, I don't even know anything about football. I don't pay attention to it. I shouldn't have gone for that sport. Imagine you're a race car driver. I know race car driving and you get 92% of the polls available in a racing season and you win 86% of the races that season. So that's nine out of 10 primary contest, four out of five general election. It's, 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 that's amazing. And there's more. According to Washington Times, Republicans, 3.5 million midterm popular vote win over the Democrats should have translated into a net gain of 25 House seats, giving the majority a firm. 230 seat majority. What went wrong wasn't a Trump hangover, but that Republicans won votes in districts which were already overwhelmingly Republican instead of the races where those ballots were certainly needed to score seats. But we can still toss back some champagne because in 2022, citizens gave the Democrats about 10.3 million fewer votes than in the 2018. So guys, in 2022, the Republicans were up 3.5 million, just raw voter numbers. Democrats were down 10.3 million compared to 2018. The Democrat, look, I, I, I know it's like, it doesn't seem like it right now, but the Democrat party is dying. The Democrat party is dying. They are bleeding voters and that's causing them to have to cheat as egregiously as they are, but they can't keep up with it forever. There's only so much room for cheating available. And as states and localities make efforts to secure their elections in whatever ways they can, and as more and more people go leave the Democrat Party and go independent or go Republican and vote accordingly, the Democrats are going to continue to lose and lose and lose and lose. And eventually, even though they ha- have things rigged, we're going to overcome it. The, tre- the trends, the, these trends are massively in our favor. But it doesn't feel like it right now. They're 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 dying. <laughs> Their party is dying. That is that is devastating. Ten point three million fewer votes than in twenty eighteen. That's devastating. So there's a bit of a white pill pill for you. And think about this, uh, Patriot Dave. Good morning. You just reminded me mentioning Roe. Remember that the Democrats and also the Rhinos spent all that time on TV over the summer and fall saying that because of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, Democrats were going to have this huge turnout and that Democrats and centrists were super upset about Roe v. Wade being overturned and they were going to they were going to show up at the polls because of it. And nope, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. That was wrong. Okay. I have this article. Let's go through this Baker stuff. By the way, 
isn't it isn't it kind of like another simulation winking at us kind of thing that one of the key players in like Spygate and all this other stuff his last name is Baker and then on the boards you talk about bakers and baking the bread and gathering crumbs and baking bread and you know like it's like a cue thing and a board thing but then we got this guy Baker so it's just like, anyway, it just makes me kind of laugh. Like we're talking about, there's like two different types of bakers we're talking about. There's this slimy baker, and then there's the baker on the board who bakes the bread. Anyway. All right. So I had this article queued up on Monday and I didn't get to it, but today's a good day to go ahead and, and uh, use it as a preamble to the rest of the uh, the discussion. Oh yeah. Somebody hit me with a rumble rant. Thank you. For Alaskan treasure. Thank you very much for the rumble rant. They say Murkowski is proof of that in Alaska. Yeah. Alaska, man, Alaska is another one that we should have gotten a MAGA. We should have had a MAGA candidate win there. I was really hoping that Sarah Palin would do well and would get back in office. Um, one, because I was a Sarah Palin fan back then. And then, um, I felt really bad for her for the way she was treated and for what's happened since. And I would just really love for Sarah Palin to be back in office because it would drive the Democrats and the rhinos insane to see Sarah Palin doing well again. I really believe that they stuck no name with Palin or they stuck. Yeah, they stuck um, no name with Palin in order to sabotage her because they never planned for, for no name to win. So I really think they stuck Palin with him in order to sink her rising star, you know, and they did. I I think they purposefully put her as VP on that ticket, knowing that ticket would lose and all, all of the, all of their organizations and their 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 complicit media turn to and culture assets uh turn to attacking and damaging Palin as much as possible and they went after her family after that and they did everything they could to destroy her because they saw that she had a better chance of being the first female president than anybody out there and that she was a she was a superstar um they couldn't allow that. They couldn't allow that to happen. So I would just really love it if she returned to politics and did really well because it would, she deserves it and uh, they would hate, they would hate it. Okay. This is by uh, Jonathan Turley. Six degrees from James Baker, a familiar figure reemerges with the release of the Twitter files. Below is my column in the New York Post on the reemergence of Baker, the former FBI general counsel, at the center of the Twitter suppression scandal. Here is that column. As thousands of Twitter documents are released on the company's infamous censorship program, much has been confirmed about the use of back channels by Biden and Democratic officials to silence critics on social media platform. However, one familiar name immediately popped up in the first batch of documents released through journalist Matt Taibbi, James Baker. For many, James Baker is fast becoming the Kevin Bacon of the Russian collusion scandals. 
Baker has been featured repeatedly in the Russian investigations launched by the Justice Department, including the hoax involving the Russian Alpha Bank. When Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman wanted to plant the bizarre false claim of secret communications channel between Trump campaign and Kremlin, Baker was his go-to speed dial contact. Baker would later testify at Sussman's trial. Yeah, he did. And he said that Michael Sussman was his friend and they were familiar with each other because they had worked together before. And that's why he went to him. Baker's name also appeared prominently in controversies related to the other Russian-related FBI allegations against Trump. He was effectively forced out due to his role and reportedly found himself under criminal investigation. He became a defender of the Russian investigations despite finding a spining of bias and even criminal conduct. He was also a frequent target of Donald Trump on social media, including Twitter. Baker responded with public criticism of Trump for his false narratives. After leaving the FBI, Twitter seemed eager to hire Baker as deputy general counsel. Ironically, Baker soon became involved in in another alleged back channel with a presidential campaign. This time it was Twitter that maintained the non-public channels with the Biden campaign and later the White House. Baker soon weighed in with the same signature bias that characterized the Russian investigations. Weeks before the 2020 presidential election, the New York Post ran an explosive story about a laptop abandoned by Hunter Biden that contained emails and records detailing a multi-million dollar influence peddling operation by the Biden family. Not only was Joe Biden's son Hunter and brother James involved in deals with an array of dubious foreign figures, but Joe Biden was referenced as the possible recipient of funds from these, those deals. The Bidens had long been accused of influence peddling, nepotism, and other forms of corruption. Moreover, the campaign was not denying the laptop was Hunter Biden's, and key emails could be confirmed from the other parties involved. However, at the request of the Biden team and Democrat operatives, Twitter moved to block the story. It even suspended those who tried to share the allegations with others, including the White House Press Secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, who was suspended for linking to the scandal. Even inside Twitter, the move raised serious concerns over the company serving as a censor for the Biden campaign. Global Comms Brandon Borman, who asked if the company would, quote, truthfully claim that this is part of the policy for barring posts and suspending users. Baker quickly jumped in to support the censorship and said that, quote, it's reasonable for us to assume that they may have been hacked and that caution is warranted, end quote. Keep in mind that there has never there was never any evidence that this material was hacked. Moreover, there was no evidence of Russian involvement in the laptop. Indeed, U.S. intelligence quickly rejected the Russian disinformation claim. He's talking about the real intelligence, not the uh, 51 hacks who wrote their letter. However, Baker insisted that there was a reasonable assumption that Russians were behind another major scandal. Faced with a major scandal implicating Joe Biden in the corrupt selling of access to foreign figures, including some with foreign intelligence associations, Baker's natural default was to kill the story and stop others from sharing the allegations. The released documents may show why Twitter was so eager to hire Baker despite his role in the Russian collusion controversies. Controversies. What likely would have been a liability for most companies seemed an actual draw for Twitter. For censors and political operatives in, tw- in Twitter, Baker likely seemed like a made man for a company committed to systemic censorship. He would be working with the chief, chief legal officer at the company, Vijaya Gade, who functioned as the company's chief censor. Gade was widely reviled 
for by free speech advocates for her dismissal of free speech principles and open political bias. Not unexpectedly, Gade and Baker would play prominent roles in the suppression of the Hunter Biden scandal. There was hardly a need to round up the usual suspects in the suppression scandal when Musk took over the company. Both lawyers swatted down internal misgivings to bury a story that could well have made the difference in the close 2020 election. It is striking how many of the figures and institutions involved in Russian collusion claims are within six degrees of James Baker. Not only did Baker work closely with fired FBI Director James Comey and other key figures in the Justice Department, but he was an acquaintance of key Clinton figures like Sussman, who pushed the false collusion allegations. He was also hired by the Brookings Institution, which also has a curious Bacon-like role in the origins and development of the fake Russian collusion allegations. Yes. None of these mean that Baker was the driving force of the scandals. To the contrary, Baker earned his bones in Washington as a facilitator, a reliable ally when it came to the business of the Beltway. It is hardly a surprise that Baker found a home at Twitter where caution was always warranted in dealing with potentially damaging stories for democratic interest. Nice article from Jonathan Turley. And I think that's the right way to put it. Baker keeps winding up close to these scandals because he's a swamp lawyer who's a reliable ally who would always advise caution when it came to dealing with any allegations or damaging stories towards democratic interest. And he's not, he's, he's a key player because he pops up all the time, but he's not a key player in that he is and he is engineering these things. He just seems to be there at the right moment to give the legal advice. Um, that, that helps the Democrat. This happens to help Democrats. Now, Last night, Taibi decided to do another thread. Diana, D11, thank you for the Rumble rant. They say, my first time joining live, love you all, but you most especially with BB sidekick. Seriously love BB too. Don't tell him that too much. His head is already big enough. But yeah, Burning Bright's all right. He's all right. If you guys haven't watched our show from uh, last Sunday, you definitely should. Defected over on Badlands Media. If you search Badlands Media on Rumble, you will find it. Um, We had a really good episode last Sunday. Really enjoyable. And yeah, if you like my content, you'll, you'll like Defected. All right. So Matt Taibbi came out with this thread last night. Twitter files supplemental. On Friday, the first installment of the Twitter files was published here. We expected to publish more over the weekend. Many wondered why there was a delay. We can now tell you part of the reason why. On Tuesday, Twitter Deputy General Counsel and former FBI General Counsel Jim Baker was fired. Among the reasons? Vetting the first batch of Twitter files without knowledge of new management. Now, so there's the error, guys. The Twitter files were given over to Matt Taibbi to go through. 
And James Baker put himself in that line. He put himself in between those files and Matt Taibbi without Elon Musk knowing he was doing it and tried to filter what Matt Taibbi was putting out in that thread that we went over on Monday. The process for producing the Twitter files involved delivery to two journalists, Barry Weiss and me, via a lawyer close to new management. However, after the initial batch, things became complicated. Over the weekend, while we both dealt with obstacles to new searches, it was Barry Weiss who discovered that the person in charge of releasing the files was someone named Jim. When she asked, when she called to ask Jim's last name, the answer came back, Jim Baker. My jaw hit the floor, says Weiss. The first batch of files both reporters received was marked Spectra Baker emails. Baker is a controversial figure. He has been something of a zealot of FBI controversies dating back to 2016, from the Steele dossier to the Alpha server mess. He resigned in 2018 after an investigation into leaks to the press. The news that Baker was reviewing the Twitter file surprised everyone involved, to say the least. New Twitter chief Elon Musk acted quickly to exit Baker on Tuesday. Reporters resumed searches through Twitter files material, a lot of it today. The next installment of Twitter files will appear. Stay tuned. So he hasn't dropped new files, but he's popped up last night to say, look, this is why we haven't given you as much as we'd like to, because James Baker got in our way. And I remembered that I had actually asked on True Social four days ago that evening on Friday when, um, or Saturday, whenever it was, Saturday, I think, when, it's Friday, when uh, Matt Taibbi did that first thread, during the middle of it, I asked on True Social, is James Baker still legal counsel to Twitter? And Google Malungu replied, yes, I thought so. It's like, yeah, I thought, I thought that he was still legal counsel there. Well, the problem's been solved. Matt Taibbi shared that Six Degrees article that I just read to you. Elon Musk replied last night, in light of concerns about Baker's possible role in suppression of information important to the public dialogue, he was exited from Twitter today, which is a clever way of saying he was fired. Sam Gab responded, was he asked to explain himself first? Elon Musk said yes. His explanation was unconvincing. Which uh, I'm going to interpret that as he tried to weasel, equivocate, uh, slime his way out of a... Uh, out of getting fired, and Elon Musk didn't fall for it. He may have even lied to Elon Musk, which is a really bad deal. But I, you know, I kind of think that Elon Musk did this on purpose. Um, my opinion is that Elon Musk knew who Baker was, and he kept Baker on after acquiring the company because he wasn't someone he needed to fire immediately. And instead, he let other people leave, and you know, he dealt with the bloat that Twitter had acquired over these years as far as personnel. And he figured out who was actually doing real work as far as coding and who wasn't. And, you know, I think Elon focused on, okay, 
let's get rid of the extra weight first and then figure out who's valuable and who's worth keeping. And I think in this, I think that he just allowed this to happen. I honestly think he kept Baker on as long as he did, which hasn't been that long. He's only owned the company for like two months now. Um, he, I think he knew who Baker was and I think he allowed Baker to make a mistake. And so he could have cause to fire him. Firing a lawyer is a tricky thing. You want to make sure you have a, you have a cover to do it, right? You want to make sure you, you have good reason to get rid of him. Diana, thank you very much for the rumble rant. PS. I only mentioned BB because I just switched over from defected number five. It was awesome. Not to be missed. Thank you very much. Over on Foxhole, thank you guys for the gold pills, Karen and uh, Porpoiseful. Larry, what were you getting? And yeah, Karen, thank you for the cookie. JC Bird, good morning. Thank you for the coffee. I saw the coffee you bought me. Thank you very much and for the shades. God bless you, man. Yeah, I'm not quite sure, Buster Lou. I'm not quite, I don't know if I would call it a sting. I just think that Elon Musk allowed Baker to stay around and he let Baker mess up knowing that he would, that Baker wouldn't be able to resist getting in the, getting in the way of such a thing. Now, I want to hit on this Technofog article. What time is it? Okay, I think I'll be all right. There's quite a bit of material today. Um, I'm going to keep rolling, see if I can get through it. So Technofog last night, last night came out with this FBI agent testimony, warning of a hack and leak ahead of the Hunter Biden revelations, analyzing the deposition of FBI agent Francis Chan. So in the Missouri case, the Eric Smith thing, they got some some uh, some testimony, and it's pretty interesting. Today, we learned more about the FBI's influence operation during the 2020 election. Yesterday, as part of civil rights suit against the Biden administration, Missouri Attorney General and Senator-elect Eric Schmidt released a deposition transcript of Dr. Anthony Fauci. And just now, he just posted the transcript of FBI Supervisory Special Agent Elvis Chan. You can read it here. The importance of SSA Chan shouldn't be understated. He was at the front lines of the FBI's effort to curb speech on social media during the 2020 election. It was Chan who has been reported to have had weekly meetings with major social media companies to warn against Russian disinformation attempts ahead of the 2020 election. Chan's testimony provides insight into these efforts. Here are the highlights. Chan and the 2016 DNC hack. For starters, just so you get an idea of who you're dealing with, Chan is a firm believer in the still unproven theory that Russia hacked the DNC DCCC and then leaked those materials over the course of the 2016 election. It gets better. Chan was the supervisor of a squad that helped investigate the 2016 DNC hack. Question, and what was your role in the investigation? What did your squad do? Answer, I was the supervisor for the squad that ran one of the investigations associated with the 2016 DNC hack. 
one can't help but ask whether Chan, a supervisor, could have obtained the DNC server, or if he even thought to request it. As observed by our friend Stephen McIntyre, who is a good follower on Twitter, by the way, Climate Audit is his handle. Chan was in contact with DNC slash Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman about that hack. From Climate Audit, Elvis Chan, the FBI agent named in connection with the Facebook suppression of Hunter laptop coverage, was one of Michael Sussman's FBI contacts. In late September 2016, he was involved in assessing the zip file published by Guccifer 2 in September-October 2016. What a small world. He's got the receipt for it. In fact, Chan believes Russia could have influenced the 2016 presidential election. Question. So your thesis was, the conclusion was that potentially Russian malign foreign influence operations may have affected the 2016 presidential election? Answer. Yes. But that we would never know conclusively. The 2020 election. Security meetings between U.S. government and social media companies. Leading up to the 2020 election, Chan was present during meetings between social media and tech companies such as Facebook, Microsoft, Google, Twitter, Yahoo, and Reddit, and the U.S. government, which was represented by CISA, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is part of the DHS, Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, the Department of Homeland Security, and the FBI. The FBI and other agencies would provide the social media slash tech companies with strategic information regarding foreign and specifically Russian influence campaigns. One example of this information sharing had to do with the Russian company Internet Research Agency, a troll farm that was indicted by by Mueller before those charges were ultimately dismissed by Barr, which had moved their operations to Ghana and Nigeria. Chan and the FBI believe the Internet Research Agency, quote, is trying to make inroads in Western Africa. A warning to the West, your memes are far from Russian in West Africa. Question. That would be super helpful. Please do. Answer. I had the 2020 elections. Through our investigation of the Internet Research Agency, we discovered that they were trying to set up a base, as it were, or set up offices in Western Africa. We shared this type of strategic information with the social media companies. They were able to use whatever detection methods they have to discover that there were Russian troll farms being set up specifically in Ghana and Nigeria. Question. Okay, and so you mentioned earlier that tactical, that would be strategic information. Answer, that would be strategic. To summarize, an example would be, we believe the Russian troll farms, specifically the Internet Research Agency, is trying to make inroads in Western Africa. Chan testified that once the social media companies get this information, they take down the accounts. The FBI doesn't control what the companies do. They just provide information. So the social media companies can take whatever steps they deem appropriate. One of those appropriate steps, one of those ways to protect their platforms, is to take down those accounts. In fact, Chan concluded in his thesis that the U.S. government essentially assisted with account takedowns. It was a joint effort. Question by Mr. Sauer. And one way to protect their platforms is to take down these accounts, correct? Answer, that is correct. 
question. And in fact, that's what you say here in this sentence, right? You say that, quote, the U.S. government and social media companies effectively impeded their influence campaign through information sharing and account takedowns, right? Answer. I said that. You can see, you can see I put respectively because it was the U.S. government, specifically the FBI, sharing information, and it was the social media companies doing the account takedowns. In other words, the social media companies don't need direction from the U.S. government to remove remove content because there's an understanding between the parties. This would include content that the U.S. government deemed to be foreign or Russian. Quote, social media influence campaigns that focus on current events or, quote, amplify existing content. This is all for the Russian government's purpose to sow discord. Question, and I take it the goal there is that they are trying to get ordinary real people in social media, including Americans, to kind of interact with or engage with that content, right? Mr. Sir, objection, vague, calls for speculation. The witness, that is my understanding, is that in general, the Russian government and the Internet Research Agency want to sow discord in the American online environment. Question by Mr. Sauer. So the goal there is to have... They post messages that they anticipate will be divisive and try to get Americans to engage with them, right? Answer, yeah, that is my understanding. Chan also explained how the FBI would share the disinformation or misinformation with social media companies. It would take place around the time of quarterly meetings, if not more frequently, through secure emails if the FBI field offices thought necessary. For example... The FBI might notify Facebook that a certain IP address is associated with the Internet Research Agency. The accounts flagged by the FBI are always removed by the social media companies, in large part because of pressure from congressional committees, as explained by Chan. Question. Okay, well, let me ask you this. When you say pressure from Congress, and you mentioned HPSCI and SSCI, what are HPSCI and SSCI? Are those are those committees? Answer, I'm sorry. Um, HPSCI is the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And SSCI is the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Question, starting with the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, what kind of pressure did they put on the social media companies to, you know, engage more ingre- aggressively in account takedowns? Answer, they compelled. I don't know if they, com- they I don't know if they compelled. They requested the CEOs for the companies that I mentioned to testify in front of their committees. Around this same time, there were visits from congressional staffers to social media companies. Uh, Senior level staffers have even visited Facebook, Google, and Twitter as part of these influence or censorship campaigns. Question. What... What social media companies were visited by the HPSCI and SSCI staffers? Answer, to my knowledge, it was the three companies that I've mentioned, which include Facebook, Google, and Twitter. Question, and Facebook, Google, and Facebook, Google, and Twitter employees all told you that they experienced these visits from congressional staffers as exercising a lot of pressure on them? Answer, that was how I interpreted their comments. Chan continued, Question, and then you go on to say, however, later on, intense pressure from U.S. lawmakers and the media would eventually force the social media companies to examine what had taken place on their platforms and strive to ensure it did not happen in the future, right? Answer, yeah, I wrote that. 
And you can see that the footnote says, I'm referencing the HPSCI report on Russian active measures. Question. So you're actually referencing HPSCI, the congressional committee that sent these staffers out to have these meetings that we just talked about, right? That's correct. Do you still agree with that statement that, as read, intense pressure from U.S. lawmakers and the media forced the social media companies to examine what had taken place and strive to ensure it did not happen again in the future? Yes, I wrote that statement and I agree with it. Okay, I'm going to pause here in the middle of this uh, this excellent article from Technofog to make a comment about what I just read. So, Chance, the FBI agent who was having conversations with them about... Russian influence operations, mal disinfo, suspected troll farms, um, that kind of stuff. And then he's, they're giving them the information and then the social media companies decide what they want to do with it. But concurrent overlapping along with that politically, political operatives Elected people in the House and the Senate are sending their staffers over to these social media companies, and they're trying to influence what the social media companies do. So the social media companies are getting briefings from the U.S. government, from intel agencies and from the FBI and DHS and whatnot about troll farms and uh, all of that stuff. They're getting information about possible attacks and threats and all of this. And the U.S. government, it doesn't seem to me, is instructing them to censor or take down stuff like that kind of thing. Unless it's like he mentioned that troll farm. Hey, we got an IP address associated with this Internet research agency and they take that down. But at the same time these briefings are happening... House of Representatives staffers and Senate staffers are being sent over to these companies to influence them and to say, look, you need to take this stuff down or we're going to call you in front of our committee. So you see how this is working, where the FBI is presenting this information, but then these political offices are sending these staffers over to make sure that they're, they're trying to influence the actions that the companies take. And they're doing it with the threat of using their power to call the CEOs in front of their committee for a hearing to make them answer for why they didn't or did do something. All right, back to the article. Information about the 2020 election and suppression of American content. Oh, Dandy St. Cloud, that's a great comment. I would love to see the visitor logs too. Yeah. I want to I want to know which which House of Representatives staffers and Senate staffers were going over there and how often and what the dates were. Yeah. I'd love to see it. I hope Elon releases that. During the 2020 election, the FBI's San Francisco field office had an election command post which flagged disinformation regarding the time, place, or manner of elections in various states. The flagged content would be referred to the applicable social media platform where it was posted. It didn't matter whether the content was from Americans or from a foreign actor. 
Chan explained that the FBI was conducting these actions upon instructions from the DOJ, which had informed them, quote, that this type of information was criminal in nature. Question, but you receive reports, I take it, from all over the country about disinformation about time, place, and manner of voting, right? That is, we received them from multiple field offices, and I can't remember, but I remember many field offices, probably around 10 to 12 field offices, relayed this type of information to us. And because DOJ had informed us that this type of information was criminal in nature, that it did not matter where the or who the source was of the information, but that it was criminal in nature and that it should be flagged to the social media companies. And then the respective field offices were expected to follow up with the legal process to get additional information on the origin and nature of these communications. The social media companies sometimes disagreed. And, And by the way, guys, it is criminal to tell people the wrong voting information like that. Like if you're purposely trying to like put out disinformation that interferes with someone's ability to vote, such as telling them the wrong time or place or manner of voting, that is, that is against the law. Not saying they didn't use that to uh, nefarious ends. I'm just saying it is against the law to do that. The social media companies sometimes disagreed. In fact, half the time, the social media companies wouldn't remove the content. Chan estimated a 50% success rate. Question, got you. Same as the go-ahead answer. I would not say it was 100% success rate. If I had to characterize it, I would say it was like 50% success rate. But that's just from my recollection. Question, and the success rate would be the number of times it got taken down based on the number of instances you reported? Answer, The success rate would be that some action had been taken because it was terms of service violation. The purported 2020 Russian hack and leak operation. Now, here we get to the Hunter Biden stuff. There's a lot to cover here, and hopefully I provide enough background to get to the juicier stuff, or at least the content that applies in some ways to the more concerning suppression of information during the 2020 election and after such as the Hunter Biden laptop and COVID-19 information. Here's Chan discussing FBI warnings about 2016 style DNC hack and dump operation and gave instructions to stay vigilant about similar operations that may take place before the 2020 election. Question. Did anyone at these meetings tell the industry participants to expect a Russian hack and dump operation or hack and leak operation shortly before the 2020 election cycle? Mr. Sir, objection lacks foundation. The witness, from my recollection, I remember that the FBI warned that I or someone from the FBI warned the social media companies about the potential for a 2016 style DNC hack and dump operation. So they advised the social media companies, hey, be on the lookout for a 2016-style DNC hack and dump operation. Chan didn't warn the companies based on actionable intelligence. Instead, the FBI gave this warning multiple times out of, quote, an abundance of caution. And based on what allegedly transpired in 2016, with the DNC DCCC hack. At around that time, Chan wasn't aware that the FBI had in its possession the Hunter Biden laptop. 
He only became aware when this information was published by news outlets. Hunter Biden, according to Chan, was never mentioned in the FBI meetings with the social media companies. Facebook, however, asked about the Hunter Biden information. The FBI's response? No comment. Chan explains, question, and you believe that this occurred after there had been, you know, a a New York Post article about the contents of the laptop that you referred to? I think you referred to earlier you finding out that it, it was that way, right? Answer. Yeah, I only found out through news media. I have no internal knowledge of that investigation. And yeah, I believe that it was brought up after the news story had broke. Question. And so the, what did the Facebook analyst ask Miss Dimlow? Did they ask, you know, hey, we have the story. Can you confirm it? Or what did they ask? Answer. Yeah, they just, I can't remember the exact question, but I believe the investigator asked if the FBI could provide any information about the Hunter Biden investigation. Chan was represented, was presented, Chan was presented with a declaration from Yoel Roth, the then Twitter head of trust and safety, in which Roth stated he was informed by people in the intelligence community to expect attacks on individuals linked to political campaigns. Chan's recollection differed, saying that there was only the potential, the potential for such attacks. Question, do you remember that occurring? that people in the intelligence community relaying that they expected attacks on individuals associated with political campaigns and that the material obtained would be disseminated over Twitter? Answer. So my recollection is different from Mr. Roth's. Not that the intelligence community expected that individuals associated with political campaigns would be subject to hacking attacks, but that there was the potential for individuals associated with political campaigns. Roth also stated in his sworn declaration there were rumors, quote, that a hack and leak operation would involve Hunter Biden. Now, this is what Yoel Roth has said, who is also um, that radical lefty that was at Twitter. He's now gone as well. Question, how do you interpret what he said when he says he learned that there were rumors that a hack and leak operation would involve Hunter Biden? What do you think he's referring to? Answer. Yeah, in my estimation, we never discussed Hunter Biden specifically with Twitter. Chan also claimed ignorance to Roth's contention that Twitter's belief that Hunter Biden materials could have been hacked as based on the information security community's initial reactions. Chan wasn't sure if this included the FBI or if Twitter reached out to the FBI about the Hunter Biden information. But if the material were hacked the social media companies were put on notice that they needed policies to address that situation. A harmless question? More of a hint to get social media companies to agree to remove the content, especially because the FBI had plans to ask the social media companies themselves to remove act content. I hope it's clear what happened. There's not a smoking gun. There's no direct email from Chan or from the FBI to Twitter or, or Facebook. From what we've seen to remove the Hunter Biden story. That's by design. There didn't need to be. The instructions from the U.S. government about hack and leak operations were quite clear, and the agency did nothing to dissuade social media companies from believing the Hunter Biden materials were hacked. The beauty of this plan, if you can call it that, was that the FBI and Twitter and Facebook all gave themselves cover by pointing the finger to the other. In a close election, That's what we call tipping the scales. From Glenn Greenwald. 
It's a bit difficult to maintain the U.S. security state add no role in Twitter censorship regime when the general counsel of the FBI, centrally involved in Russiagate and all sorts of politicized abuses, ended up as Twitter's deputy general counsel with pause in everything. In related news, Twitter general counsel James Baker has been exited. The story is still developing, but part of the reason appears to be because he was vetting, quote unquote, the Twitter files which show FBI Twitter communications in which informed the decision to ban the Hunter Biden story. More to come as that story develops. Excellent article from Technofog. This is Technofog at its best, in my opinion. Um, I commented to uh, back here last night, and I don't remember if it was before this article came out or after. I think it was right after this article came out. I kind of I, I commented that I suspect we're going to find out that there wasn't some specific info where they said that that they that they the FBI went to Facebook or Twitter with and said this is this Hunter Biden stuff is Russian disinfo or anything like that. It's just that they set the stage. They just allowed the social media companies to interpret that. And uh, Cody Pont here recalled, and y'all may recall too that we learned thanks to Chuck Grassley and a whistleblower from Twitter that they were warned by the FBI that there was a Chinese agent among their employees. And so might be interesting to find out where this Chinese agent worked at Twitter and if he may have had a hand in influencing their decisions on the Hunter Biden laptop. Um, don't have that thread. We can't connect that right now, but I think it's a, that's a good memory to have that. And you got to think if there was a Chinese agent at Twitter during the 2020 election, during when the Hunter Biden laptop came out and they were able to influence how the Hunter Biden laptop, they were in a position in the company to influence how the Hunter Biden laptop story was handled. They would have tried to make sure it got suppressed. Right? So might be something to that pin that pin that on in your head is a possible thread or a possible connection that would inform us of how it came to be that Twitter suppressed that story. And yeah, it was uh the Twitter whistleblower was Zatko and this was from September 13th of this year. He disclosed that the FBI notified Twitter of at least one Chinese agent in the company. Okay. That's the Baker stuff. Time is it? 1042. Okay. Let's, let's go to this story real quick. Lady Q, thank you for the rumble rant. I say thank you for your work. Is there an end result and can this all be fixed? Well, not everything can be fixed, but um, most of it can. Yeah, most of it can. This isn't... uh, This isn't nothing we can't get past (laughs) or we can't handle. Um, Oh, that reminds me. I see your comment. uh, Danny St. Cloud about 51 intelligence agents said it was Russian disinfo. Yeah, so... 
those people did, but he was referring to the actual people in intelligence, the intelligence community at that time, not all those political hacks, but the actual IC, such a, and the DNI, such as Richard Grinnell. And I think this is the one, uh, there we go. There wasn't a single, this is Richard Grinnell was ODNI at this time. There wasn't a single, there wasn't a, he was DNI, not ODNI. He wasn't the office. He was the DNI. There wasn't a single piece of raw Intel that suggested Russian information. Former 50 former Intel officers manipulated the presidential election of 2020 for political gain. He would know. Grinnell would know. He was the DNI. Brandon Devine, never forget that Adam Schiff used his authority as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. See, this, this is what we need to know. We need to know how many Adam Schiff staffers were sent over to Twitter and Facebook to have conversations with them around the time of the Hunter Biden laptop story. How many phone calls were made from Adam Schiff's office by his staffers to try and influence how social media companies handled the Hunter Biden laptop story? We need to know that information. And Ratcliffe said... um, or wait, Grinnell wasn't, Grinnell was, maybe Grinnell, Grinnell was bad ambassador at that time and then Ratcliffe was DNI, whichever it was. Flashback, two weeks before the 2020 election, presidential election, the official position of DNI, DOJ, FBI were clear. What happened after is also clear. A disinformation campaign and election interference by dim party and media, social media and social media actors to suppress the truth and amplify a lie. So, John Radcliffe here. Yeah, John Radcliffe was DNI. And by that time, Grinnell was an ambassador, I believe. Um, Radcliffe said, yeah, we didn't have any information. The official positions of DNI, DOJ, and FBI were clear. What happened after that is also clear. A disinformation campaign by the Democrats and their media. And it's quoting Major Garrett. See, um, I want to make sure you understand what Ratcliffe did. On December 5th, Ratcliffe went back and found Major Garrett's tweet from October 20th, 2020. And it says the FBI and DOJ concur with DNI Ratcliffe's assessment that Hunter Biden's laptop and the emails in question were not part of a Russian disinformation campaign. FBI does have possession of the Hunter Biden laptop in question. Oh, surprise, surprise, the uh, the guy who pushed back on that and says, no one knows if it's Hunter Biden's laptop um, is a uh, Ukraine simp. No surprise there. Okay. Next story. And this one actually gets to... Uh, There's two stories here. Yeah. Okay. So if this isn't, this this didn't come out yesterday, I posted it yesterday, but it didn't come out yesterday. It came out a couple days ago or a few. This is from, is it December 1st? Okay. The date's important. December 1st. 
from the Department of Justice, Office of the Inspector General. Investigative Summary Findings of Misconduct by Former FBI Unit Chief for Prohibited Post-Employment Communications and Misuse of Position The Department of Justice, Office of Inspector General, initiated an investigation upon receipt of information from the Federal Bureau of Investigation alleging that after retiring, a former FBI unit chief may have made communications to the FBI with an intent to influence matters with which the unit chief had been personally and substantially involved while working at the FBI in violation of federal law. During the investigation, the OIG also found evidence that before retiring, the former unit chief may have engaged in misuse of position to benefit a family member in violation of federal ethics regulations and FBI policy. The OIG investigation substantiated the allegation that the former unit chief knowingly communicated with the new unit chief with an intent to influence matters with which the former unit chief had been personally and substantially involved while working at the FBI and told the new unit chief to approve a payment in a disputed matter involving the former unit chief's new employer, also in violation of federal law. The OIG investigation also found that the former unit chief, while still employed by the FBI, engaged in misuse of position by intervening with both an FBI field office and a local law office, uh, law enforcement, on behalf of a family member in a business matter, also in violation of federal ethics regulations and FBI policy. Prosecution of the former unit chief was declined. The OIG has completed its investigation and provided a report to the FBI for its review and action it deems appropriate. Unless otherwise noted, the OIG applies the preponderance of evidence standard in determining whether Department of Justice personnel have committed misconduct. This is posted December 1st. Now, when I shared this, everybody immediately keyed in on prosecution of former unit chief was declined. Totally understand that. Reasons for it being declined could be corruption, could be, uh, we don't really want to prosecute one of our own. Could be, guys. Could be. Could be lack of evidence. Could be OIG found evidence of this misconduct and these violations of federal law. But there's not enough evidence there for a conviction in a court of law. Okay? So that might be a reason it's declined. It also might be declined because the former unit chief is cooperating with an investigation. That's possible. And lastly, it could be declined because a different office is picking up prosecution, such as the special counsel's office. Any of those four explanations could explain why prosecution was declined here. Now, the line in this that most stuck out to me was this one. The OIG investigation substantiated the allegation that the former unit chief knowingly communicated with the new unit chief 
with an intent to influence matters with which the former unit chief had been personally and substantially involved while working at the FBI and told the new unit chief to approve a payment in a disputed matter involving the former unit chief's new employer in violation of federal law. So, who is this new unit chief, and did this new unit chief go along with what the former unit chief wanted him to do? And is this related to Spygate? Is this related to Spygate? I am wondering. Now, my first candidate for who this might have been about is this guy. Remember I told you the date was important? This is from December 1st. We'll check out what happened on December 2nd. Top FBI official steps down as Republicans prepare to probe into Bureau. This article is from December 6th, but in a December 2nd post, the day after this, the day after this was published, Stephen D'Antonio, or D'Antuano, Dentuano. In December 2nd post in his LinkedIn profile, Stephen Dentuano, assistant director in charge of the FBI Washington field office, announced his retirement. After a 26-year, 10-month career with the FBI, I chose to retire. Yesterday was my last day. His last day was the same day this report came out. That's quite a coincidence. That's quite a coincidence. Attributing the decision to wanting to spend more time with his family, he added, quote, deciding to retire was not easy. It is extremely difficult to say farewell to the mission and the wonderful people I work with. But in making my decision, I knew it is time to hand the reins over to the next generation of FBI employees. News of D'Antuano's retirement comes just weeks after the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee named him as one of nine FBI employees they would require testimony from as they seek to investigate potential political bias at the Bureau. Quote, over the past 21 months, we have made several requests for information and documents concerning operations and actions of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the congressman wrote in November 12th letter to FBI Director Christopher Wray. Quote, to date, you have ignored these requests, or you have failed to respond sufficiently, Please be aware that if our requests remain outstanding at the beginning of the 118th Congress, the committee may be forced to resort to compulsory process to obtain the material we require. D'Antuano is a figure in a lot of FBI scandals. And I just can't help but wonder if he's the new unit chief that the former unit chief was trying to influence here. I also have someone else in mind, and I'm trying to remember his name, but we covered him several months ago because he's under investigation. It's not that. What is his name? Uh, oh, gummit. What's the name of that FBI agent that was a chief that is connected to Deripaska? McGonagall. There we go. McGonagall. Remember this? Remember this from September? 
former top FBI official involved in Trump-Russia investigation under scrutiny by federal prosecutors for his own ties to Russia. A former high-level FBI agent who was involved in the investigation into Trump campaign contacts with Russia during the 2016 election has himself come under scrutiny by federal prosecutors for his ties with Russia and other foreign governments. Late last year, according to internal court documents obtained by Insider, U.S. attorneys secretly convened a grand jury that examined the conduct of Charles McGonigal, a former head of counterintelligence at the FBI field office in New York City. The Justice Department declined to comment on what the grand jury was investigating or whether it remained ongoing, but a witness subpoena obtained by Insider seems to indicate that the government in part was looking into McGonigal's business dealings with the top aide to Oleg Deripaska the billionaire Russian oligarch who was at the center of allegations that Russia colluded, which by the way, reminds me, I need to check on that indictment of, of Deripaska. So, so the former chief, yeah, Iowa Trump. Good morning. The former chief was trying to influence the new chief. And I'm wondering if, if it's this guy, is the new chief who was trying to be in, or unit head was trying to be influenced by someone former or does it connect to this guy and he's the former one and he was trying to influence the new guy in New York anyway just two hypotheses you know two possibilities for who this might have been about i could totally be wrong um Right now, I feel most strongly about this guy since on the same day this report came out, it was his suddenly his last day at the Bureau. Really dasting. Really interesting. All right, this looking this up again reminds me to check on. The Deripaska case. Let's go ahead and do that. Where is it at? I got all these cases in my bookmarks. Y'all can't see my bookmarks, but there's a ton of them listed right here. Which one is it? It's not Nordine. Deutsche Bank. Huawei. There it is. There it is. Okay. And see, remember, this was September 15th, and then just, yeah, this was, that was September 15th, and then it was only two weeks late, a week and a half later, we got the indictment of Deripaska and his associates. So I wonder if the grand jury that had to do with this guy was actually investigating Deripaska and his accountant and stuff and others. That seems likely. Okay. Yeah, nothing new here. Nothing new in this case. Okay. We'll keep checking it. Okay, we got got a little over 30 minutes left for this show. Let's take a short break. Just a short coffee break to refill our cups. Just a few minutes. And when we come back, 
We've got more to cover. I think I've got so much stuff. I'm going to have to do a, uh, I'm going to have to do a bonus hour. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. I've got, I've got too much stuff for me to get done with the time I have left. So we will, uh, we'll do a bonus hour tonight. I'll record it and post it. All right, let's take a short intermission and we'll come back for the last 30 minutes or so of the show.
Okay, I am back. As if, um, as if my wife like heard me mention that I was going to be doing a bonus hour. She just texted me and said she has, um, she has training tonight for her job. Um, CPR recertification tonight. So. I'm still going to try and do a bonus hour. We'll see what happens. I'm still I'm still going to try to do a bonus hour. All right. I think what I'll do is the the coverage that I have for Rivera, the swampy Republican who got busted. That's quite substantial. Um the amount of information that I have because Dawson did an amazing thread on it. So I was going to read Dawson's thread as well as some other stuff um, on it. So I think what I'll do is I'm going to save that for the bonus hour. And we are going to get to right now. Yeah, let's do this right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I got a plan. I have a plan, guys. I've got a plan. Super pro. Okay. I want to do this right here. So special counsel Jack Smith has issued some of his first subpoenas. Ideasthesia, thank you very much for the coffee money. Thank you very much, sir. All right, so Justice Department has subpoenaed individuals in Arizona, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Special Counsel Jack Smith has subpoenaed local officials in Arizona, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Three states that were central to former President Trump's failed plan to stay in power following the 2020 election. Put your filters on, guys. Just put your filters on, okay? It's Washington Post. Just put your filters on. For any and all communications with Trump, his campaign, and a long list of aides and allies. The request for records arrived in Dane County, Wisconsin, Maricopa County, Arizona, and Wayne County, Michigan late last week and in Milwaukee on Monday. They are among the first known subpoenas issued by Smith, who was named last month by Attorney General Garland as the special counsel and charged with investigating the January 6th Capitol attack and the criminal probe of Trump's possible mishandling of classified documents in his Florida home. Let's see. Can we see these subpoenas? Do they have them right here? Let's see. Okay. This is... Department of Justice, Jack Smith, Special Counsel, November 22nd, Grand Jury Subpoena. Dear Sir or Madam, pursuant to a criminal investigation being conducted by the Special Counsel's Office, it is required that you furnish the requested records as described in the attached subpoena in lieu of personally appearing before the Grand Jury on the date indicated. You may comply with this Grand Jury Subpoena by producing the requested records and documents to the Special Agent Daniel Mahochko, FBI Field Office, Okay. 
Jack Smith. Subpoena to testify. You're recom you're commanded to appear. Stand is eight. You must also sign this. See attachment. In lieu of formal appearance before the grand jury, you may produce all responsive documents and records to this special agent. Electronic, okay, electronically record information, request for documents for the period of June 1st, 2020 through January 20th, 2021, produce any and all communications in any form to, from, or involving Donald J. Trump for President Incorporated, the Trump campaign, Donald J. Trump, or any employer agent of, or attorney for the Trump campaign, or any records or records or documents that record, summarize, transcribe, annotate, or reflect any such communications records produced shall include, but not limited to, any and all communications to, from, or involving any of the following persons or entities, or any records or documents that record, summarize, transcribe, annotate, or reflect any such communications. And then here you have... Cheesebro, Clark, DeGenova, Eastman, Ellis, Boris Epstein, Giuliani, Carrick, Marks, Mitchell, Morgan, Olson, Olson, Pasentino, Sidney Powell, Bill Stepien, Tunsing, Trupis, and Lynn Wood. In lieu of formal appearance before the grand jury subpoenas, reduce this. Okay. So this is the example. These are all the individuals that they're off now. Okay. This actually gets me really excited seeing these this list of names here. Um, all right, two takeaways here. Two takeaways here. If you if you believe that DOJ is actually after Trump and they're actually trying to get Trump, then you may look at this and think, "Oh God, this is bad." And you may look at this and think, "Oh God, this is bad." They're after Trump. They're looking for anything they can to get Trump with. I don't believe that. I don't believe that that's what's going on here. Because Trump is an asset. And Trump gathers evidence on people. And so does Rudy Giuliani. He's an asset and he gathers evidence on criminals. And they've been, Rudy Giuliani and Trump have been doing this together since the 80s. And. I think that what's going on here is they're investigating a lot of people who were in the uh in on the attempt to frame Trump and to steal the election from Trump and to frame him for January 6th. So, I see this list of names. I mean, this Lynn Wood jumps out at me like holy crap. All the communications related to Lynn Wood. Hell yeah. I hope this guy gets investigated for what he did. Um, but guys, I want, I, I, this is my, when I saw this, do you real, do you guys realize how close this special counsel is to investigating the 2020 election? Do you realize how, think about it. Think about how close this special counsel is to investigating the 2020 election. 
I mean, he's just a couple steps away. He's he's so so close. He could reach out and touch the steal that happened in November of 2020. And if he's gathering all the communications and records, electronic and otherwise, related to the Trump campaign and Donald J. Trump or employees or agents thereof, he wants all of that, all that, all those documents and records and related to any communications with any of these people. Man, he's so close to actually investigating the steal in 2020. So close. Now, I'm not saying that he is doing that. But he ain't far from it. At all. It's very it's very interesting. Um Now, I know that people are going to really disagree with me on this because the normal take is that this guy is super bad and he's after Trump, just like Mueller was after Trump and Comey was after Trump. And I don't believe any of that, guys. I don't I know that's the narrative, but I don't I don't subscribe to it. I know it's super popular, but I don't subscribe to it because I know Trump's history with those people and I know Trump's history as an asset and uh, busting down criminal organizations. And there's criminal organizations in the Democrat Party and criminal organizations in the Republican Party. And if this guy is investigating criminal acts on J6 and he's gathering evidence from these people, he's going to end up gathering evidence that has to do with the steal in November of 2020. And that's what all these people were talking about back then. That's what their communications are mostly going to be about, right? So, it's pretty interesting. And then, you know, like, you see all the all the negative info coming out about Jack Smith. Like, his wife produced a documentary on Michelle Obama or whatever, and then this guy's connected to Lois... Uh, learner and the targeting of uh, various packs back in 2010, 2012 or whatever it was. Um, they're building up Jack Smith as being this leftist monster bad guy who is going to get Trump, which is what they've done to everybody who supposedly was going to get Trump. And when this guy clears Trump, it's going to be that much more powerful because he's not going to find anything on Trump that's criminal because Trump isn't a criminal. And when he doesn't find anything on Trump and Trump quote unquote gets away again, he'll have gotten away from this guy who has been built up to be such a monster and so capable of getting Trump. So, but I, but there's strong disagreement about that and I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. Now there's other people that I'm good friends with and their opinion is that no, Trump actually is going to get arrested. He's going to get indicted for obstruction or something like that. And uh, then we're going to go through a process where he's on trial and then a whole bunch of evidence is going to come out that way. 
and Trump isn't going to actually go going to go to jail, but he is going to catch a charge. I don't I don't believe that, but regardless of how it pans out, I do believe that things are going in the way that they're supposed. I think things are going in the way Trump wants them to go. I'm firmly of the opinion that um, Trump wanted this special counsel appointed. I know that may sound odd, but Trump made the appointment happen by announcing so early. If Trump had not announced he was running for president when he did, the Justice Department wouldn't have had to appoint a special counsel. And Trump knew that. That's why that's why they were I believe that's why Cash Patel said that Donald Trump's announcement is going to set the political and media worlds on fire. And then we got the announcement and we were all like, "What? That doesn't set anything on fire. It was actually kind of boring." But then Three days later, special counsel Jack Smith is announced, and it was announced because Trump was running for had announced he's running for president and had filed paperwork to do so. And the situation was such that Garland had to appoint a special counsel. Trump knew that would happen, and that's what he wanted. He wanted this special counsel appointed, in my opinion. And one of the reasons is because of things like this. It's very interesting, guys. And we're free to we're all free to disagree on it. And now I'm going to present something in the last several minutes of this show um, that is a little bit different from the take I just gave. Because I'm entertaining more than uh more than one explanation here. And there could be more than one thing going on, likely is. Okay, before I read this, thank you everybody for watching today. If you enjoyed the show, whether you agree with me or not, if you enjoyed the show, uh, please hit the plus button over on Rumble. It really helps the show out. Uh, thank you all for the Rumble rants and for the gold pills over on Foxhole. Wherever you're watching, I really appreciate it. If you like the show, uh, please share it. I also have a clips channel on Rumble where I put clips from the show, like I clip out segments of these articles and different things. If you're looking for short clips to share with anybody you think might be interested, but you probably can't get them to watch a two-hour show, go to my clips channel, Just Human Clips. Grab something that you from there you think they might be interested in and share it with them. If um, you are still Christmas shopping... Well, Vincent Honey Farms is a partner of the show, and they have some really great products, including this candy, which I have some right here, which is very addictive. And of course, their honey, which I have right here with me all the time and use every day. Their honey is awesome. They're a patriotic company and um, a good friend of the show. Use rep code JUSTHUMAN when you check out. And that helps me out as well as helps them. My favorite products, I will tell you, are their soaps and their candy. Those are my two favorite. They also they have packaged stuff like the gift, gift box. Their barbecue sauce is pretty fire. I like that quite a bit. And I usually don't like barbecue sauce, but theirs is good. Anyway, if you're still Christmas shopping or you just want some honey or some soap, 
bensonhoneyfarms.com, rep code just human. Also, there's other ways to support the show if you want to. Down in the description, you'll find my links. You'll find my buy me a coffee link, my Substack link, all that stuff. Um, your your um, your support is what makes the show possible, and I sincerely appreciate it, guys. I love doing this show, and um, I love having this community. Y'all are, y'all are great. Y'all bless me every day, and I really appreciate it. R.L. Skeeter blessing me right now. Thank you very much for the Rumble rant. Oh, you hope I do a bonus hour? I promise I will do a bonus hour. Um, it's going to be on the swampy Republican Rivera that was just arrested and indicted. And that subject goes really far. It goes it goes really far. So let's go to the last topic here before I run out of time. Y'all may remember this person, this fake Rothschild who made an appearance at Trump's golf club and was photographed with Trump. And the left made a big deal about this. And I remember covering it on my show and saying, you know what, I bet this person isn't actually Russian like the media is saying. And sure enough, she's Ukrainian. She's Ukrainian, but as is the world we live in right now, and such is the Mistis Mal Info efforts that we have to deal with every day, that someone who is Ukrainian but is seen as bad by the media is instead described as being Russian because it's it's verboten right now to say anything negative about Ukrainians um, so or associate them with anything negative. So they characterize her as Russian. She's really Ukrainian. Now, this story. Fake Rothschild was chased by Russian organized crime when she took pictures with Trump at Mar-a-Lago. For months, she drove a Mercedes SUV into Mar-a-Lago. For months before, she drove a Mercedes SUV into Mar-a-Lago to masquerade as a member of the wealthy Rothschild clan and take pictures with Donald Trump in a yash... Yashish. Okay, I should have practiced this. I should have practiced this. Oh my gosh. Yash Chishin. Yash Chishin. Yash Chishin. I don't know. Yash Chishin. We're going to call her Yash. All right, Yash Chishin. Yash Chishin, Inna, was receiving threatening text and calls from a man who warned he meant business. The man was a Vor V. Zaskon, or thief in law, a ranking member of a Russian organized crime group. Yash Chishin apparently ignored the messages from the man who called himself Artak. She owed him more than $150,000, he said, and threatened to warn her, harm her, and her family if she didn't pay up. By the time she rolled into Mar-a-Lago in May 2021, she had dodged a series of messages that had grown angrier and more threatening as they were ignored. Quote, I will force you to respect me. You have until Friday, said one text. Another included a photo of the condo building where she was living, sent to an associate, along with an ominous warning that read, Wait, bitches. Guest at former President Donald Trump's South Florida resort called how Yashchishin told of her wealthy European banking family and growing up in Monaco. Monaco. They bought the story when she mingled with Trump and former Missouri Governor Eric Greitens. But she wasn't a Rothschild, nor had she lived a life of luxury in Europe. 
Instead, the self-confessed grifter was a Ukrainian immigrant tangled up with Russian organized crime. A joint investigation by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and OCCRP has found. That's the website I'm on, OCCRP.org. It's a good website to visit for this kind of information. OCCRP and the Post-Gazette revealed in August how Yashishin gained access to Mar-a-Lago without any background checks, making at least four trips to the estate in two days. The investigation and an FBI action that same month to retrieve documents from Mar-a-Lago renewed questions about security at the private club that has hosted powerful U.S. world leaders. Now, pause. The record scratch. I need a record scratch sound effect right here. What was that? What was that? OCCRP and the Post-Gazette revealed in August how Yashchishin gained access to Mar-a-Lago without any background checks, making at least four trips to the estate in two days. The investigation and an FBI action that same month to retrieve documents from Mar-a-Lago renewed questions about security at the private club that has hosted powerful U.S. and world leaders. Guys, is this the person who the FBI is investigating is this who they're investigating in the Mar-a-Lago raid? Because what are the charges that the affidavit for the Mar-a-Lago search warrant are predicated on? What are the charges that are in that? It's obstruction, it's destruction of documents, and it's uh, espionage, right? Was this individual who owes all this money to Russian organized crime? Did she attempt to or successfully gain access and make copies, destroy or acquire documents at Mar-a-Lago that were stored there, marked classified? Is the reason the FBI has such an interest in the empty folders that are marked classified because the contents of them were accessed by this individual? Is the FBI's interest in Mar-a-Lago security and asking Trump to change the locks on the secure area and all of that have to do with this individual? Does the FBI subpoenaing surveillance footage in June from Mar-a-Lago for security footage of Mar-a-Lago and Trump giving it over to them? Does that have anything to do with her gaining access? This is a picture of her at Trump International Golf Club in Florida in May of 2021. It was June when they wanted security footage. Did she access those areas of Mar-a-Lago in May of 2021? And then the next month, FBI visited Mar-a-Lago, made recommendations on the lock, acquired security footage. And then in August, they executed a search warrant because the affidavit said there is a belief that there is evidence at Mar-a-Lago 
of espionage, violations of the Espionage Act, obstruction of justice, and destruction of of, uh, government records. Hmm. (laughs) Sergeant Sparky says, it's ma'am, it's ma'am. Yeah, it's... (laughs) I'm not going to comment on her appearance. There's no need to. The investigation and an FBI action that same month to retrieve documents from Mar-a-Lago renewed questions about security. Those questions will only grow with new revelations that the fake Rothschild was being chased by serious organized crime figures as she mingled with prominent club guests and the ex-president himself. Yashishin, 34, was, has bounced between Miami and Quebec in the past few years. She worked until recently with a Russian immigrant named Valerie Tarasenko, 45, who had investments in both places. The two appear to have worked together running a charity called United Hearts of Mercy, which operated out of Florida from 2015 to 2021, with Yashishin as its president. It also had a Canadian branch registered as a business under the name Le Cour Unis de la Miscorde. Just go with it, okay? I, I, I definitely I definitely pronounced that correct. The charity claimed to be helping poor children, but OCCRP could find no public documentation of how it spent the funds it took in. Instead, United Hearts of Mercy reaped donations from fraudulent credit card payments that ranged from $125 from a church group in Australia to $19,200 from an investment broker in Hong Kong, internal records obtained by OCCRP show. United Hearts of Mercy is also what links Yashishin and her associates to organized crime. Interviews and newly obtained records show that the charity had been taking in money from Artak Mardoyan, a self-acknowledged thief-in-law, under a deal he said had been struck with her in 2020. In a recent accent, in a thick accent and colorful language, Mardoyan told journalists Yashishin had cheated him out of more than $150,000 he he was managing, which was routed through the charity as donations. He had originally sent her a large sum of money, he said, which was supposed to be split 60% for him, 40% for her. He did not explain the origin of this money or why he had chosen to work with Yashishin. Mardoyan said he reached an agreement with Yashishin to move the money through her charity by depositing it into United Hearts of Mercy account with Stripe, a major payment processing company. He said the cash he deposited was later withdrawn and he never saw it again. That makes me really angry, he said. That girl, she just withdrew the money and ghosted. So we have been looking for her for a long time. As said the great rapper Tupac Shakur, I'm not a killer, but don't push me, Mardoyan added, quoting the rapper's song Hail Mary. Mardoyan's Instagram posts show him bearing tattoos on each shoulder of the eight-pointed star, a common symbol associated with thieves-in-law, criminal figures who often serve as leaders of organized crime groups with roots in Soviet-era Russia. Many of these groups have operations that spread across the former Soviet republics and beyond after the collapse of communism. Mardoyan openly admitted that he was part of the criminal network, but said thieves-in-law had positive qualities like being clever and standing up for everyday people against the rich and powerful. Remember the movie Robin Hood, he asked? Robin Hood is the thieves-in-law, for example. You come to Russia and you make some business and somebody lie to you, your problem can only be solved by thieves-in-law. 
When a deal goes bad, generally someone doing business with a group has a protector, which Russian gangsters call a krisha, literally a roof, with whom negotiations could be set could be held to resolve the dispute. But Mardoyan said Yashishin had no krisha and thus was courting danger by ducking him. Karen Greenaway, a former FBI agent who investigated such groups before and after the breakup of Soviet Union, described Mardoyan's threats as consistent with how thieves and law operate. It's their money and you don't screw them over. So she likes conversation. Messages arrived in Versalina's phone that show her home address, birth date, and credit. Rosalina, 37, a certified public accountant registered in Maryland, claimed she pleaded with Yashishin to report the threats to law enforcement. But she claimed Yashishin told her not to say anything. She threatened me that all these threats will, will become real for me and there will be harm for my family. Rosalina later wrote in a statement turned over to the FBI that the charity had become a money laundering mill planned by Yashishin as a conduit for financial crime and organization with other groups. After filing for a restraining order against Yashishin in Montreal, Verzalina returned to her native Russia and has declined interview request. Asked about Yashishin's alleged association with Mardoyan, two lawyers representing her declined to comment. Stripe confirmed moving the payment in 2020 for the United Hearts of Mercy and finding stolen credit cards from Hong Kong were being used to make donations. One of those unsuspecting donors was Amori Dupuch, a Hong Kong-based financial trader who was billed $19,200. He says, I didn't make that donation. Payment platform fundraiser, which booted the charity, also suspects, also over suspect transactions, confirmed it found stolen cards from New Zealand, Japan, and Hong Kong. Documents show the charity never declared revenues above $21,500, but an internal document attained by OCCRP showed hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations. Documents obtained through Freedom of Information Act show United Hearts of Mercy listed two other directors. One was Miami attorney Tony Stabinow, Stabinow, which which spokesman uh, said he had no knowledge of his involvement with a charity. Another was a Colombian man, Gonzalo Rueda Castillo, who said he had no knowledge of the charity or its directors and that he was making myself available for the authorities should they want to talk to me. Okay. Yashishin, like her ex-business partner, Tarasenko, who has claimed in court filings to be unemployed, but spoke in a court deposition of owning an F-250 and a Mercedes G-Class SUV. It was the latter vehicle that she drove into Mar-a-Lago in 2021, mingling with Trump, influential South Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, and Kimberly Guilfoyle, the girlfriend of Donald Trump Jr. A woman pops up, and she is representing herself as someone she's not, and she is connected to the thieves-in-law, said Joseph Serio, an author and lecturer who has written about national security and organized crime. The whole thing stinks from top to bottom. Yeah, something sinks in. Arturell, yeah, you're right. It's um, She visited in 2021. The FBI raid was 2022. That is correct. I think I did say the next month was subpoena. The it would be a year and a month later they got the uh, security footage. Um, there was a subpoena for security footage, but if this is if this is what they're investigating, 
it sure fits. Like it, there's, there's a lot of things about this that fit what the Mar-a-Lago investigation could be about. There's a lot of things about it that fit. I can't say that that's what it is, but man. There's a lot. <laughs> Lyomi, <laughs> read the room. <laughs> read the room. <laughs> uh, um, I think, I think that she is just the, uh, She's just yet another person who got in Trump's orbit and got caught on his wire, caught in his quicksand. We'll see what happens with her. I don't think we've heard the last of this investigation. I think I think there's something here. I think there really is. I don't know if it's related to the Mar-a-Lago raid, but... Um, Man, it sure would be a good fit. A lot of things about it seem like a good fit. Okay. I need to go. I've got, I got to go get my kid. And uh, so that's the end of the show. Thank you guys very much. I enjoyed it. Hope you did too. I will uh, get this out as a podcast through uh, justhuman.substack.com. And, um, if you're interested in a podcast version of the show, that's how I do it is through the Substack app. Um, but if you prefer another podcast app, you can connect it to feed to Apple or Podbean or whatever app you like to use for podcast. Um, so God bless each and every one of you. Remember, we're not going to win every battle. We are going to win this war and I'm going to do a bonus hour on a swampy Republican who got busted as well as the Epstein case. There's the new Epstein case by Epstein victims against Deutsche Bank and JP Morgan Chase Bank. The trial date has been set in that for June 20th of next year. I'm going to be going through that case. I may have to do two bonus hours. I don't know, but watch for it. I'll post them on Rumble. It won't be a live show. I'll post it on Rumble as a recorded episode. God bless y'all. Have a great Wednesday.